Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode, our first of 2022, on January 19th. With us to provide their latest views are Tad Nigren, Managing Director and Head of Guggenheim's Rates Sector Team, and Jerry Tsai, a Vice President in the Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. I also had a conversation with Jim Pass, a Senior Managing Director and Head of Project Finance for Guggenheim Investments. We will be looking at several issues today. First, on the macro front, the latest inflation data came in hot at 7% year-over-year, the highest since 1982 when Paul Volcker was running the Fed. The persistence of inflationary pressures, as well as the drop in unemployment to 3.9% in December, has all but cemented the market view that rate hikes are at hand and likely here to stay. Jerry Tsai of our macro team will set the stage for us on the economic backdrop. Second, the shifting calculus on the future course of monetary policy is driving volatility in the stock and bond markets and playing out across the yield curve. Who better to give us context and perspective on recent developments in the Treasury market and what we may see going forward than Tad Nigren, the head of our government's and agencies desk. And third, the need for revitalizing investment in infrastructure is a global concern both here in the United States and around the world. But so is the need to build this infrastructure sustainably. I caught up with Jim Pass to talk about this market. To begin with an update on the economy, let's bring in Jerry Tsai from our Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Jerry, take it away. Thanks, Jake. Last week, the most important data release was the CPI report. At 0.55% month-over-month, Core CPI stayed hot in December on a sequential basis. Used car prices did contribute 15 basis points to the month-over-month gain, but the recent inflation is broad-based, with shelter inflation rising and broad contributions in the other category, from appliances and apparel on the goods side to household maintenance and personal care on the services side. The fast median and trimming measures which strip out the most volatile components, remained strong in December. If the current trend in underlying inflation persists, year-over-year CPI inflation will stay around 5% in 2022. With the Fed forecasting 2.7% core PC inflation in Q4, sequential inflation needs to slow to hit the Fed's forecast. Given the services inflation in the pipeline, we will likely need outright declines in durable goods prices, which there is no sign of yet. With elevated inflation, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index took a hit in early January. The latest reading was the second lowest in the past decade, and the 5-10 to year inflation expectation came in at a new cycle high. Three quarters of consumers ranked inflation compared with unemployment as the more serious problem. The UMIS survey suggests that if high inflation doesn't ease soon, it may spur a pullback in consumer spending. Relatedly, 
retail sales and core retail sales decreased by more than expected in December. Still, the miss was mainly due to a pull forward in holiday spending. The spread of the Omicron variant was slightly a drag as well, but there are signs that the latest outbreak is peaking. Turning to data releases overseas, China's PPI and CPI printed lower than expected in December. Falling PPI and muted CPI inflation would allow the People's Bank of China to ramp up its efforts to arrest aggregate demand weakness. We see the coming two weeks. As a key time frame for the Chinese central bank to lower policy rates further, so that the policy easing can take effect before the Lunar New Year holiday. Also in China, fiscal policy measures supported money supply and total social financing growth in December, but private sector demand for credit remained weak due to sluggish real estate activity. We'd expect the government to continue to increase fiscal spending to stabilize growth in the coming months. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Jerry Tsai. Next up, we have Tad Nigren, who will update us on the rates market of government and agency bonds. Tad, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Jay. Well, the new year has certainly got off to an interesting start so far in the U.S. Treasury market. To get an idea of where we currently stand and how. Fast we have gotten here. I think that it's helpful to take a quick look back at how 2021 ended. As you may recall, the market received a hawkish change in rhetoric and actions from their Federal Reserve at the end of the year. Strong consumer demand and continued supply chain disruptions had led to inflation that proved to be less transitory than the Federal Reserve and most market participants had expected. As the high inflation prints became sticky and the labor market inched closer to full employment. The Federal Reserve announced a reduction in its asset purchase program of 15 billion per month at its November meeting. The market had come to expect this result prior to the meeting, and it was not a surprise at the time. What did come as a bit of a surprise was a December meeting, where the FOMC decided to double the pace of its reduction to 30 billion per month, along with a revision to its summary of economic projections. That showed it now expected to raise interest rates three times in 2022, up from just one expected hike given at its September meeting. These developments led to a bear flattening of the yield curve, with five-year Treasury yields moving higher 90 basis points on the year, and 30-year Treasury yields moving higher by 25 basis points on the year. The Treasury market had delivered an overall total return of minus 2.3 percent, the first negative total return for the index since. 2013 taper tantrum, where it had returned minus 3.3 percent. Now that we have reviewed what happened at the end of 2021, let's talk a little bit about the start of 2022. The market has pushed Treasury yields another 25 to 35 basis points higher across the curve. Two-year yields are now trading north of 1 percent, and the first hike by the Federal Reserve is now fully priced for the March meeting. Additionally, there is over 100 basis points of cumulative tightening priced in for 2022. I think this move shows just how quickly the narrative in the market is changing, driven by what I believe are two factors. The first is the surprisingly strong inflation data we have been receiving, where the December CPI data came in at 7%, the highest reading in over 40 years. The second is the labor market. Which now appears to be approaching full employment after the December unemployment rate came in at a surprisingly strong 3.9 percent. 
I think the Federal Reserve has been a bit surprised by the string of strong inflation and labor market data, and they now appear ready to speed up the removal of financial accommodation. If you are detailed-oriented like me and curious about this breakdown of the move higher in intermediate treasury yields, then this section's for you. I think it's very interesting given how the headline inflation numbers we have experienced recently, the sell-off in the treasury market has actually been driven by a move higher in real yields as opposed to rising inflation expectations, where break-even rates are actually lower over this period. Looking at current 10-year treasury securities as a proxy, uh, nominal yields have actually risen by 25 basis points, whereas TIPS real yields have increased by 35 basis points year-to-date, lowering the overall 10-year break-even inflation rate from 260 to 250 basis points. I think this should be perceived as a positive development for the Federal Reserve, but should the market come to believe that the Fed is getting behind the curve, I would expect these break-even rates to once again increase. Looking ahead to the next few months, we do expect the Treasury yield curve to continue flattening from here. Additionally, we expect the Federal Reserve to commence its tightening cycle shortly after it completes the wind-down of its asset purchase program. This could come as early as the March meeting, depending upon how the inflation and labor market data continue to evolve over the next few months. So it is very likely to remain a volatile and exciting time with many opportunities for investors in the treasury market over the next few months as the Fed moves ever closer to its first rate hike of this cycle. That's all I have for you today, Jay. Thanks, Tad Nigren. I was very fortunate to catch up with Jim Pass, one of the leaders in our firm's efforts in sustainable infrastructure development and investment. Let's listen. Jim, you've been involved in infrastructure investing, project finance, municipal finance, and sustainable investing your whole career. Uh, more recently, you've been a leader in the work towards making sustainable infrastructure, infrastructure into an institutional asset class. So to begin, what is sustainable infrastructure to you? Sustainable infrastructure is a central component of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And those goals, there's 17 of those. And ultimately, we feel, and I think other investors as well, is that when we design infrastructure, we want to consider those goals. And with the gap of $4.5 trillion of, of need, that we have a great opportunity to create a whole new asset class, meaning sustainable infrastructure. And how is sustainable infrastructure financed now? Sustainable infrastructure, just like any other finance, uh, any other um, infrastructure categories, being financed with equity and debt um, from very, very, you know, various components, whether it's, um, you know, the central governments of where the infrastructure is located, or institutional investors providing equity, but predominantly that the source of capital remains to be debt. And you know, at some point, we're trying to balance the the, the tool of debt or the use of debt with equity. And ultimately, in sustainable infrastructure, we feel that there's a greater role of the equity providers than just relying on the central governments of the world, just because the need is so great that we can't rely on the government to fund 100% of the infrastructure needs in, in, in the world. Now, uh, obviously, there's a lot of capital uh, that is managed by institutional investors. 
Um, and you'd think that this would be an asset class, sustainable infrastructure that would be of interest to them. But um, why hasn't sustainable infrastructure become an, an institutional asset class? And what do you think is the key to unlocking institutional capital? So one of the aspects that we feel is definitely necessary to unlock the private capital to fund sustainable infrastructure is to have common standards or improve the data that an institutional investors like Guggenheim um, can analyze. And that by doing so, we can attract private capital, not only to be lenders, but also to be equity providers to infrastructure projects on a global basis. So Jim, tell us about the work that you've been doing to advance this goal of having sustainable infrastructure as an institutional asset class uh, and the common standards that will be required to make that happen. You know, we've created something internally called the Sustainable Quotient, which is a framework of four key sustainability or um, attributes that you know we at Guggenheim and other institutional investors we believe should analyze not just for infrastructure projects, but also for fixed income investment strategies. And one of those quadrants, obviously, is the financial return. We have to get um, institutional rates of return for our clients, and that's traditional credit analysis. But the other quadrants are focused on good governance, environmental soundness, and social impact. So in many ways, ESG but we view those components in the sustainable quotient deeper because each one of those aspects can basically impact positively or negatively the financial return. So human capital, for example, could really be, you know, how are we, or how is the project um, partnering with the local population to provide social benefits? The same thing is environmental soundness, green capital or natural capital. In many ways, natural capital, the natural resources or the ecosystem can provide its own solution for us when we're analyzing projects on the infrastructure side. And then most importantly, it's good governance, making sure that the, um, you know, the board of managers, trustees, whatever you may be, um, is transparent. As we've been very active in sponsoring um, various thought leadership pieces um, by teaming up with academic institutions, as well as the World Wildlife Fund, um, and sponsored you know, three reports that are out on our website and have been shared publicly. Um, and those reports analyze you know, the status of the standards um, that we had mentioned earlier, that standards right now um, are diverging. Um, more mm -hmm. and more institutions, more and more academics want to create their own while we mm -hmm. feel there has to be a convergence along those. So we've worked with Tufts University, we've worked with Stanford University, as well as we've actually engaged an entity out of Switzerland to analyze and apply their standard, which is called SURE, S-U-R-E, to a, a project at LAX, which is a, um, a vertical cargo community. Um, it's a concept at the moment, it hasn't been built, hasn't been approved, but we wanted to see from an infrastructure investing perspective how the standard would look at a greenfield project um, from the very planning stages, being to get people to um, accept standards. 
and debate the standards. And, you know, over the years, really since 2020, in the last two years, there's been many, many initiatives, whether it's been um, climate um, centric um, or, you know, more attention to social aspects, um, you know, that were driven with recent events. Um, but I think there's progress to be made. But, but really what will drive this more than anything is going to have the ability of institutional investors and project developers and making sure that data points are consistent in their preparation and, and can be shared so that, you know, a Guggenheim analyst or one of our competitors has the ability to draw down the same data, but then we can modify it and stress it accordingly unto our investment approach. So progress is slow, but at the same time, where when we started this journey, you know, many, many years ago, I would say that, you know, we're, we're still in, um, in a, probably in the early innings, but, um, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, especially that this decade of, you know, the 2020s is a decade of action because the 17 sustainable goals, you know, we're trying to satisfy those as a, as a globe, as a world by 2030. What is the investment proposition for, uh, for, for putting money in sustainable infrastructure? Well, I, I think it's, it's twofold. One, infrastructure has always been um, an attractive asset class. It's, it's you know, it's long duration. Um, it has compelling returns. There's, a, there's, you know, in this day and age, there's positive environmental and social impact we can see. But also, it's not correlated to a lot of other asset classes. So, diversification is something that is very critical to recognize and, and understand. But also, I, I think it also, it would be a new asset class. It would be something that would be allow, um, you know, for portfolios to be dedicated or be designed and be constructed rather than just, um, you know, other hard assets that here we'd have the ability to measure um, not just the financial returns, but also those other the other components of the sustainable quotient that I mentioned. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jim. This has been very enlightening. Uh, please come back and talk with us soon. I definitely will, and thank you. My thanks once again to Tad Nigren, Jerry Tsai, and Jim Pass. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our new podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO Outlook by Scott Minard, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation.
This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results.